Howdy. Welcome to another episode of Canon Calls. This week, I have the privilege of speaking with Professor Ralph Wood from Baylor University about the life and works of Flannery O'Connor. Before we get started, I wanted to ask that if you enjoy this podcast, it would help a lot to make sure that you're subscribed and that you've left a rating. So without further ado, meet Professor Wood. Awesome. So Professor Wood, you teach at Baylor University in Waco, Texas. And in particular, right. I, I contacted you about your work on Flannery O'Connor. Well, I'm glad to hear about your podcast, and I hope it has a, an ever-increasing audience. Thank you so much. So can you just tell us who Flannery O'Connor was? Sure. Flannery O'Connor um, was um, a Southerner. That's the most uh, first and most important thing to say about her, because everything that she does has, therefore, a Southern character and flavor, uh, though not in a defensive way, where she is not uh, trying to re-engage um, the Civil War so that this time the South might win. <laughs> um, but she um, she grows up in she was born in 1925. She grows up in Savannah, Georgia. And then in Milledgeville, uh, Georgia. Um, and the thing that then begins to set her apart almost from the first is that she is a Roman Catholic. And Roman Catholics in the South are often very sparse. For example, in my home county up in eastern Texas, which is very much part of the South, there is not a single Roman Catholic church. There are parts of the South where only the population is at most 2% Catholic. So uh, she is, in that sense, by the time she gets to Milledgeville, she's already um, in a minority. And that begins to set her apart so that she has a, a critical kind of distance on her region that helps her assess both its strengths and its weaknesses. Um, she is very bright. She finishes high school at 16. Um, she is not able to um, afford going off to a fancy school, so she stays in her hometown goes to the local college. She then wins a big scholarship at the University of Iowa, a famous creative writing fellowship. And there she begins to um, discover she's really meant to be a writer with a difference because she stands out from, from the crowd. Her teachers there are just stunned at the quality of her fiction. She begins to publish short stories, and, and off she goes. And so she begins, therefore, to become... Um, a figure to be reckoned with by the uh, the mid fifties, um, and taken seriously as very few other um, young writers. She was only twenty at that time. Uh, were being taken. She, sorry, she's in her late twenties. Um, she is one who has about her an angularity of vision. She is not one who writes what she calls the bland novel of manners. <laughs> She wants to write a, a fiction that will arrest the reader's attention, will awaken readers from their um, sleep, and will alert them to questions and realities, and above all, to mysteries that they're likely to ignore. And at the depth and the core of those mysteries, of course, stands the incarnate God. Uh, she comes down with lupus. Um, in those days, a deadly disease disseminated lupus erythematosus. 
which she has inherited from her father that, of course, she did not know he had. Um, he did not know he had until he'd already, of course, helped um, give birth to her. So she has to move back from her um, desire to live away from the South. She was living in Connecticut. So she comes back home um, in 1951 to her uh, original home in Milliesville, Georgia. And there spends the last 13 years of her life dying and writing uh, what I regard as the most important uh, Christian literature uh, on the entire American scene. That's quite a claim, of course. but I have found no one who can really um, contest it successfully. T.S. Eliot, of course, is a very great Christian writer, but he's an immigre. He he leaves the nation, uh, the U.S., and goes and spends his life in England. But all of our major writers, and you count them on your on your hand, from from Hawthorne and Melville to Emily Dickinson and um, Mark Twain, on in the 20th century to Henry James, um, and um, well, great poets like Wallace Stevens, Robert Frost, great novelists such as William Faulkner, are all people whose faith is either um, attenuated or uh, absent altogether. At best, they are heterodox writers. Uh, she is an orthodox writer, but by that I mean she hews to the very center of the great Christian tradition, um, and that makes her, I think, again, I claim stands, the greatest Christian writer this nation has produced. Dies in 1964 uh, as the lupus finally uh, takes her at the tragically young age of 39. One of the things that you see on a lot of the artwork connected to her works is peacocks. Yes. Can you mm-hmm. can you speak to that a little bit? Yes. Uh, as a part of her desire not to be simply... Uh, folded into a society where she would just be um, absorbed anonymously. She sought to stand apart not only in her writing, but in her hobbies. (laughs) And her favorite hobby was raising peacocks. Um, Better uh, put, uh, peafowl. Remember, only the male is the peacock, female is the peahen. It is a a magnificent bird. Its uh, tail feathers, when spread, reach to six or eight feet. They have a glorious kind of um, eye, almost like a map of the world, as she called it, uh, at the tip of those feathers. Um, The peacock spreads his tail, on the one hand, as a pure biological mating um, gesture, but on the other hand, he was ready to say when there's no peahen around, as if simply to give glory to God. And uh, one of her uh, characters says, when a peacock spreads his tail, Christ will come like that. <laughs> in other words, in sudden, unexpected glory. And so, yeah, she spends her life raising not just peacocks. She raised ducks and geese. Uh, she had a burrow <laughs> whose name was Equinox. Uh, so she loved the animal and rural life, because when she came back to Georgia, Milledgeville, in 1950, um, Christmas of 1950, um, getting deathly ill on the train and sees that she will never go back to live in, in uh, New Haven or outside New Haven again, she um, 
is unable to live in the home that she grew up in uh, down in the center of Milledgeville, which was, by the way, the the Confederate capital uh, during the Civil War, much of it, only later transferred to Atlanta. She couldn't negotiate the stairs. She was, you know, she was so weakened and crippled. And so she moves out to the family farm about three or four miles outside Milledgeville. So she spends those last 13, 14 years of her life living on a farm and thus watching the natural um, patterns and seasons of the year, the growth of animals and crops. Uh, her mother ran a dairy farm. They had a, a, a group of um, a family of Polish um displaced persons living and working for them. So she she comes to see that she was wrong about her prediction. She said, I thought coming back home would be the death of me. I would never write another creative word. At the end, she says, the best of my work has been done here. Hmm. And what she means by that is that in a great metropolitan uh, center, you can be anonymous. You can invent your own reality and get by with it. Um, in a, a medium-sized um, southern city, about 15,000, 20,000, you can't do that. You're, you, you have your measure right before you all the time, the people who know you, the people whom you grew up with, in her case, her own mother. Um, and that that defining reality gave her something um, that could not be replaced, something to be treasured and honored, and she did so. She was glad, in the ultimate final sense, to have had to come back home again, as Thomas Wolfe famously said, you cannot do. Now, what has been your relationship to the works of Flannery? You had the opportunity to hear her speak. Yes, um, I would... I would have probably not had any relation to Flannery O'Connor until much, much later in my own life, except for the extraordinary good fortune of having had the single and only Roman Catholic professor on my college campus. As I told you before, my part of the South is not thick on the ground with Catholics. Um, And he was by far the the best teacher, the, the best scholar. Uh, the most widely read, the man with the most languages. His name was Paul Barrus, B-A-R-R-U-S. And he had met her at a Southern Literary Festival and asked her if she would come and speak at this small college, East Texas State, about 60 miles east of Dallas. And she agreed to do so, in part, a lot of people don't know this story, because she was never a moneyed woman. She lived off her, largely off her, honoraria that she received from these speaking engagements. So she made her only Texas visit in 19, November 1962 uh, to my little campus, and there I heard her give a, a stunning lecture. And What was most remarkable about it, she had given a similar lecture at uh, the University of Chicago, and all of her great one-liners fell completely flat because Yankees don't get... Um, much humor at all, certainly not Southern humor. <laughs> and this this unwashed, um, you know, um, uncultured bunch of rednecks got it all, and she she relished it. And so, yeah, I got not only to see and uh, hear her speak, I began reading her work, and I knew immediately I had struck gold because she she put three things together that I'd never seen before had seen combined. Uh, on the one hand, she was writing about my world, namely the poor South. 
since she's not in the company of William Faulkner, who writes about the plantation South, the wealthy South, the South of slaves and antebellum mansions and people drinking uh, mint juleps on their front porch. Um, She's writing about poor folks. She's writing about an almost entirely poor Protestant uh, folk, people who were not fundamentalists. That was a word that was not even in currency, but people who were just Bible-believing Christians in a very stark and primitive way. And I'd grown up as virtually one of them, and so I, I saw... Uh, here, she was entering my world, and I'd never seen a writer who could do that in my religious world. Um, and being religious, I had been taught up to bring mint, being solemn, absolutely serious, um, <laughs> not ever laughing, or much less joking. And her fiction was hilariously funny. So here she's on the one hand, a deeply Southern writer about the rural Protestant South. She is hilariously funny. And, of course, those two come together in that she's deeply Christian. And I I saw if I could um, put those three things together um, in interpreting her and in being the basis for my own career in theology and literature, I would have my, my vocation, and it turned out to be such. I can't remember where I saw it. I think it's in a, in a foreword to a book uh, on the Summa, Thomas Aquinas' Summa, a quote from Flannery that she would stay up late reading it and that her mom would have to tell her to turn the lights out. And it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't like Treasure Island. It was the Summa. Right. Yeah. That was one of the funniest stories she, she liked to tell. Um, in fact, she has a story based on St. Thomas called the comforts of home. And that is, uh, it's about Thomas's famous, um, um, uh, uh, um, exiting of the prostitute that his friends, you know, brought to him as he got ready to leave for the monastery, <laughs> threw her into the room with him, and he picked up a hot poker <laughs> and ran her out with it. Well, that story is a kind of distant echo of that. Yeah, she uh, she came to Thomas, by the way, largely through Jacques Maritain. She is not, as it were, a Thomist who goes and gets Thomas right from the source. She gets him largely from Maritain, but she does read him every night. And as you've just said, that's not bedtime reading. <laughs> you don't drowse off unless you're unable to comprehend what Thomas is saying. But she tells it uh, even better, uh, knowing that her, her readers will recognize that the word said contra uh, is it's at the center of, of uh, Thomas's um, method. Of course, it means on the contrary. So that when her mother comes in and says, and by the way, her mother saved O'Connor's life. She took such good care of her. Uh, in those declining years, protecting her, not letting her stay up with her uh, egghead friends talking until 2 a.m., but she went to bed every night at 10. She said, I can just envision my mother coming at 10 and said, okay, Flannery, it's time to go to bed. Um, let's put out the light. And Flannery replying in, uh, 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 to her, uh, said contra, <laughs> light being eternal cannot be put out. And then she adds wickedly, or some such nonsense as that. <laughs> so she pokes fun at herself, less than her, her mother. You have written a book, as I mentioned at the beginning, that I came across, called Flannery O'Connor and the Christ-Haunted South. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a bit about the title? Sure, sure. Flannery O'Connor, that's a phrase, of course, from her. She says, we're the Christ 
haunted region. And she's very careful to, to, to use her words there. She does not say the Christ-centered South. Right. Because she knows that certainly the, the, that while the South remains the most religious uh, section of the nation, at least in her time, well, and even in ours, that um, it violated its Christianity um, almost all the time, first by the institution of slavery, and then by the institution of radical segregation, um, and therefore um, the great sin of our region as of the nation at large is what we've done to uh, black people. But in the North, in speaking in broad sweeping terms, the ethos is um, of a kind of usually um, liberal Protestantism um, that for her waters down the gospel into a kind of um, at worst uh, social service agency where you go about doing good to make and improve society. Nothing wrong with that, of course, uh, but that's not Christianity. Whereas in the South, um, despite its its evils, um, it was it was hooked by and centered in um, the gospel, Christian faith, Christ Himself, and for her that made, as I like to put it, the South at once the worst and best region of the country, because as the rest of the country was running headlong against its. Um, it's it's it well against Christian faith and in, in its depth. She saw the South as hanging on to it as if only though by being haunted mm. uh, by the biblical stories that it cannot get out of its head because it's hearing those being preached every Sunday. The people who are of those kind of what I call folk Christians in the South are reading their Bibles every night. And once you have your imagination formed by Scripture. And the gospel, uh, you're not going to be able to get rid of it. It's going to haunt you. And therefore, her favorite metaphor is that Christ moves from tree to tree in the back of the southern mind. And that's the image, of course, of a stalker, one who's um, stalking prey. So that's, a, for her, um, uh, it's like what Francis Thompson calls the hound of heaven. Hmm. Christ stalks uh, the southerner. At least the southerner of her age, uh, uh, she grows up, as I've said, in the in the uh, 40s and 50s, lives through the early 60s. So, yeah, um, and that's what made most of her earlier readers totally miscomprehend her, even her Catholic readers, to her great distress. They assume that here this this culture, sophisticated, learned, um, polished Catholic, was making fun of these idiot. Uh, Southern folk Christians who were um, preaching on street corners, warning people that they would be damned if they didn't turn to Christ, that, that she was making fun of them. Um, and therefore, she should be seen as one who uh, is on the side of the culture despisers <laughs> of uh, that kind of faith, when, as she said, they are my friends. Mm. They're the ones whom I swear by. And she adds, of course, with a tone of regret, the only thing that divides us um, is the church. And by that she means, of course, um, for her as a, a faithful Catholic, there is no salvation in the fullest sense outside the church. And so what happens often in O'Connor's fiction is that you've got these Protestant um, folk Christians who are making up their Christianity as they go. And it often, therefore, does take a grotesque form 
But um, for her, a grotesque Christianity is hugely superior to none at all. <laughs> One of her imitates Ezekiel by eating the Bible. He tears out page by page <laughs> and starts to eat it. <laughs> yes, it does seem like that word grotesque follows her work, and I know that she uses it uh, several times to describe her work as well. Mm-hmm. She doesn't mean by that something gothic. So the grotesque is never gratuitous. She never employs figures such as I've described uh, in order simply to excite the reader's imagination with uh, things that are just outre, that are, as we say, out there, that are beyond uh, ordinary imagination. Uh, but she does want to shock. So for her, the human condition itself is grotesque. We are fallen creatures. We are radically sinful. We are, by definition, Christians are eccentric. <laughs> we are off-center, uh, even when we're trying to overcome our fallen condition. And so for her, the grotesque describes best both the fall of the human condition, nature, but also the redemption of human nature. Christians are odd wads. She famously said, you shall know, she quoting John 10, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. (laughs) (laughs) In other words, you don't fit in. You don't fit in a culture like ours if you're a serious Christian. And she's certainly going along with the grotesque point that you were making. She certainly had no patience for a sentimentality that seemed to be growing. Yeah. I wish she were alive today because our culture is sentimental to its core. She says sentimentality is to Christianity as pornography is to art. That's a stunning, that's my summation. But what she meant by that is that sentimentality, now over against sentiment, see sentiment is a good thing. Sentiment means right feeling about things that matter so that you're properly moved when you see ugliness that you are rightly horrified by. You're properly moved when you see beauty. You're moved to want it. That's true sentiment. But sentimentality is a taking of shortcuts. Uh, and that's, that's why it's so pornographic, like pornography. It easily arouses feelings, emotions, desires, and then very quickly satisfies them uh, with nothing in between, without any context by which you can define either the emotion aroused, much less the satisfaction that follows. And um, she pointed that finger of sentimentality not only against um, Protestants, but against her own Catholics. She felt that, um, for example, at her home church there in Millersville, the pastor was Irish. And could, and how much more Irish can you be than to be named O'Connor, who would festoon the church in green on St. Patrick's Day. And for her, that was an abomination. That was sentimentality. That was saying, look, isn't it nice to be good old Irish Catholics? Uh, and remembering the, um, you know, the traditions of the old country. No, a thousand times no. For her, then, the ultimate form that sentimentality takes is not just easy feelings quickly satisfied, but they take the form of a false tenderness. Hmm. And that's the word that she really focuses on when she talks about sentimentality, a false tenderness 
that believes that suffering is the ultimate evil, and therefore to protect people from any kind of suffering, not only physical, but sexual suffering, for example, um, must be overcome. You've, you've got to find ways, in, according to the gospel of tenderness, so that nobody's feelings get hurt, so that no one has to discipline themselves, so that no one has to undergo the rigors of self-denial, so that no one has to, at times, simply tragically accept one's own condition. And, of course, you need faith to do that. And so in her most haunting line, she says, um, we live in a culture where tenderness, long since cut off from the source of tenderness, by which she means, of course, Christ's love, ends in the fumes of the gas chambers and the smoke of the concentration camps. Isn't that haunting? Very. (laughs) She was effective. Yeah, because you, our whole society, she saw it being built on that premise, and it takes political form. Think about it in our own culture. I don't need to go into that, but ours is a culture of tenderness. You must not deny anyone his or her own subjective self-identities. Hmm. You make every accommodation possible, even to the carving up of a perfectly human body, uh, so it can can fit those subjective tender desires. With sort of the thesis of your book and with what you were just saying, do you think that the South heard Flannery's warnings and heeded them, or do you think she went largely unheard? Well, that's that's a good but difficult question. Um, Flannery O'Connor really wanted to reach a secular audience. By that, I mean, she did. she said, I don't want to be known as a Catholic novelist. I want to be known as a novelist who is in every way first-rate, so that I never shortcut on the question of form, the question of technique. And so she wrote and rewrote and rewrote every story so that there was nothing uh, unneeded uh, left in the story or nothing left out that should be in the story. And therefore, the fiction must stand on its own as a work of art. And she hoped that as such, it would have an appeal um, that would would strike the secular reader for its own inherent excellence. And in some cases it did. I mean, Alfred Kazin, one of the great, what we call New York Jewish critics, was deeply, deeply moved by her and others. But it turns out that O'Connor's fiction has its has had its deepest effect on Christians. And by that I mean she helps us see the extent to which we are like the grotesque characters that she depicts. She helps us see that we have twisted ourselves like pretzels into knots of self-interest and sinfulness. And she doesn't just satirize the uh, twisting. She offers ways out of that twisting, as almost every story ends in redemption. And so what I think her long-term effect has been, and I trust it will continue to be, Um, is to strengthen the faith of her Christian readers, who are largely, you know, her readership is largely made up of Christians, Um, so that our faith is deepened and toughened and not made soft and um, tender. Now, she had two novels. She wrote many short stories. I don't think 
not many. She publishes two books of short stories, each with about 10 short stories. Now, she wrote a few more than 10, a um, few more than 20, but basically 20 short stories that she you know, could, could be measured by, and the two novels, that's right. It's a nice collection of essays that can be found under the title Mystery of Man- and Manners. Uh, and those include many of her speeches that she gave uh, on the lecture circuit. But the book that I would recommend your hearers, listeners, um, to take, not most seriously, but next most seriously, is her magnificent collection of letters called The Habit of Being. Hmm. Uh, I, I call them, uh, in, a, in a paradoxical way, the best spiritual reading one can ever undertake. If you read a letter a night of Flannery O'Connor, she will save your soul. <laughs> because you get to see her wrestling with... Um, the fact she's going to die young. Uh, of course, she doesn't know it, but we can see it coming. And to see how magnificently she refuses to make her lupus the defining center of her life. You see, in our culture, if you make a, if you have a disability, that's what defines you. And you eagerly embrace that disability so as to be thus defined. Not for her. She rarely even hints at her suffering physical suffering uh, in those letters or anywhere else. Uh, They're uproariously funny. She has one of the most wicked wits um, you ever will encounter. Uh, For example, she's on the lecture circuit and someone asks her, Miss O'Connor, what is the significance of the misfits hat? He's a character in her signature story, Good Man is Hard to Find. She replied, the significance of the misfits hat is the cover of the misfits head. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not gloomy. They are funny. And you see her coming to an ever larger appreciation of her mother, who was her mother mother, let's face it. But O'Connor comes to see in her stories and in those letters that she is the one in danger, not the mother. Her mother is a is a uh, a cradle Catholic who believes what Catholics believe because she's been she's an O'Connor. Um, Flannery, by contrast, is what my Catholic friends have taught me to call a credo Catholic. Now she was a cradle Catholic, but a credo Catholic is, of course, one who who believes that their lives and their deaths depend upon um, the faith given to us in Christ Jesus. So uh, you get to see that faith coming out in a totally non-sentimental form. There's not a sentimental uh, drop in those letters. Hmm. So I hope your your podcast listeners will get feed to the bookstore and get a copy of The Habit of Being. Now, all of these are handily collected uh, in that one volume from the Library of America called The Collected Works of Flannery O'Connor. Hmm. Uh, but it has only a selection of the letters. Now, it's a hefty selection, but not all of them. And likewise with the essays. It's a good selection of the essays, but not all of them, as you'll find in Mystery and Manners. Now, the talk that you heard live, is that found in Mystery and Manners? Say it again? The, when, you got, when you got to hear her live. Oh, yeah. Um, she, the, the talk I heard her give is called Some Aspects of the Grotesque. Um, in Southern literature, and that is found in uh, Mystery and Manners, and I think it may be found in Collected Works also. Okay. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about short stories, because that is where some of my favorite stuff of hers is, 
Um, I remember when I took Flannery for class, the short story was not one that I was super familiar with as a medium. Uh, sure. Um, William Faulkner once said that a short story is the second most difficult art form um, to the lyric poem. It, by definition, is short. <laughs> you don't have the leisure to flesh out characters fully, to follow them through a long and complex plot, and therefore to let the reader gather an ever-increased understanding of the characters and the twists and turns that their lives take. A short story has to, first of all, create a conflict and, within the space of 15 pages, resolve that conflict without cheating, <laughs> but putting in all the necessary details that will let you understand what the conflict is and how it might be resolved. And therefore, it has about it then a third quality. The ending is usually, it almost always is in O'Connor, radically surprising. She says, my story should end in such shocking surprise as to be at once totally unexpected and absolutely fitting. So, as you know, a lot of uh, kind of O. Henry stories give you a, tw a, a plot twist at the end that's surprising, but it doesn't have to fit with the whole action of the of the character in the story. So, yeah, the short, short stories are very difficult for him. It's not, uh, although O'Connor always poking fun <laughs> at herself, uh, I write short stories so my mama won't have to take a long time reading them. <laughs> <laughs> Her, her two novels uh, are both, I think, very great works of art, but they are like, um, how shall I put it, extended short stories, an extended short story. That is to say, they are so packed in the way a short story has to be packed uh, that it's sometimes difficult for readers to follow uh, the compact quality of the, uh, of the characters, the events, and the like. The Violet Bared Away is a book that very few people even claim to understand. <laughs> I had an interview when I was at Oxford with um, uh, Ian Kerr, who's one of the most important uh, Catholic interpreters. Uh, he's one great Chesterton biographer, and he has all of O'Connor's works on his shelf. He's read them all, and he said to me, I'll never forget, I have no idea what's going on in The Violet Bared Away. <laughs> and it some doing so that's why readers will be better off to begin with the with the stories and then the short stories i'm oh, sorry with the letters and then the short stories but don't begin with a good man is hard to find her <laughs> signature story is so compact that most people miss what is happening at the end and therefore five people are killed and people can't sleep after they've read that story and do not see the way in which those deaths are all redemptive. In other words, no one uh, is tortured. No one is made to um, uh, have their fingernails torn out, for example. Um, they all go to their deaths, maybe except for, for the, the little girl, graciously. And so that story fulfills O'Connor's uh, famous motto, a lot of people get killed in my stories, but don't nobody get hurt. <laughs> but in a way that's <laughs> it's difficult to follow, uh, in that unless you know what the grandmother is doing, 
when her head clears for an instant and she reaches out and touches the misfit and says, after she spent her whole entire um, narrative trying to say why the misfit <laughs> should not kill her, because he ought just to, he ought to pray. Of course, she never prays. Um, and she keeps saying, well, you're a good man. And he says, no, I ain't a good man. <laughs> She's on the self-defensive until the point comes where she even denies her own faith. She says, well, maybe Jesus didn't raise the dead, nor she apostatizes. She denies her faith up to that point when her head clears for an instant. And she reaches out to touch the misfit and says, why, you're one of my own babies. You're one of my own sons. Well, she didn't have but one son. In other words, she sees that she is just like him, that he in his nihilistic delight in mayhem and murder is not different in degree, but different in kind. Sorry, he's not different in kind, but different only in degree from her. That she is a woman who has murdered her faith. But she, in that one moment, grasps that's what she's done. And, of course, that's what he can't stand when she sees she's, in effect, repenting. He plugs her right. three times in the chest and says, this is the best of, of uh, North Texas, Sherman, Texas grammar. She would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every day of her life. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. That is that Sherman, Texas grammar. So begin with the story called Revelation. That's the story where, as she might say, don't nobody get killed. Um, some people do really get hurt, however. Um, and it ends... Um, shockingly but with an absolute appropriateness um, a redemption that's really earned and not just asserted um, and with a glorious glorious final uh, vision that a lot of her Protestant readers miss um, but a glorious vision of paradise uh, uh, sorry purgatory but even if you miss the purgatorial vision you will get the fact that these are people on their way to paradise so it will be through having all their sins burned away. Hmm. In fact, she says of her, uh, the, the narrator says of the, the main character, Eva and her husband, her name is Ruby Turpin, and her husband's name Claude. Ruby and Claude will have to have their virtues burned away. Hmm. She didn't say they have their vices, because their virtues are so small-minded. They believe in good order and uh, proper um, relations and limits and boundaries that every, you know, good citizen ought to have. And those are not bad things, but those are not sufficient. Those, in fact, lead to self-congratulation, those small virtues, because they're so easily observed. Everybody can stand up for good order. Professor Wood. thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I hope that you can come back. You have several other works. I mentioned I really appreciated your Tolkien book, and I saw you have a Chesterton book now that is waiting in my Amazon cart to get. Is there anything else we can point folks to that you're up to? Well, I'm just uh, I'm trying to produce one last book on O'Connor, a collection of my previously published essays, 
that I'm reworking uh, very slowly, I might say. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a fast worker. And if I get it finished, it's to be called Flannery O'Connor and the Church Made Visible. And by that I mean that we live in a time in which the call of the church is not to fold itself, again, this is, you see how much like O'Connor this is, uh, into secular society as a kind of, uh, you know, a nice addition to it uh, that will kind of make it a little more humane, but to offer a drastic alternative witness to it. And that's to be made visible, not invisible. Okay. Definitely looking forward to it. I'd love to have you back on if you if you would oblige. And Sure, this has been a lot of fun. Well, thank you. Well, good luck to you and the Baylor Bears the rest of the season. And the best to Cannon Press and you folks um, up there in Wyoming, is that right? We're up in the chimney of Idaho, kind of near Spokane, Washington. Oh, that's right, that's right, that's right. The shoe heel of Idaho. I knew that, but I forgot. Well, again, the best to you. Thank you so much. And quick question. You mentioned Sherman, Texas. Mm-hmm. Did I say that I was? Did I tell you that I was from there? You said north of um, of Dallas, and the only two towns I can think of are Sherman and Denton. <laughs> I had an aunt and uncle who lived in Sherman. I have a friend who taught at Austin College. Okay, and thus I just use the word Sherman, you know, because it's the only one I can think of. <laughs> no, you didn't tell me. Love it. Well, that's where I graduated high school before I before I headed out. So. Anyway, love that. Is that right? It uh, is, yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Okay, let's stay in touch. Yes, sir. Thank you so much.